0: Dr. Emma Southon holds a PhD in ancient history. She did that at the University of Birmingham, but her life is even more exciting since then. She's the author of uh, Marriage, Sex and Death, The Family and the Fall of Rome, and Agrippina, as well as a book I'm reading at the moment, which is A Fatal Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. It's amazing. It's all about murder in Rome which is just one of the things that makes Rome so exciting for all of us. She also co-hosts her own history podcast with the writer Janina Mattison. It's called History is Sexy and the podcast is very sexy too. So it's a great pleasure to welcome you to um to Blind History.
1: It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm always so delighted when people are even reading my book let alone enjoying it. So um it's just really exciting. <laughs>
0: Reading it, I'm devouring it at the moment and it's the, it's the first of what I hope will be many of your books that, um, that I can go through (laughs) the entire catalogue the next time we speak.
1: I wouldn't recommend the first one. That's my PhD book and it's all very serious and has no jokes in it. So.
0: (laughs) Well, maybe that's a good place to start because you have left academia. You found it a bit stifling and boring. You can either stick around in academia as many great writers have and you are a, you're a terrific writer or you can go and have fun on your own, which is what you've elected to do. And. You, you stick to Rome largely because Rome is so bloody fascinating, isn't it? It
1: is. It is. I got into studying ancient Rome by accident, really, um, because I did an A level in ancient history purely because if you did the A level you got trips to Italy and Greece. <laughs> and I thought that sounded quite fun. But I was going to be a psychologist and psychology was going to be my um my thing that I did. But Romans and the sheer weirdness and horribleness and the kind of weird mismatch between how they imagined themselves to be as like the pinnacle of civil and how they actually are as um just horrible <laughs> horrible people for the most part just kind of constantly fascinates me and um it just I can't get enough of it. I keep trying to leave um like my original plan when I left academia was I was going to be a librarian and that didn't last because I just couldn't stop thinking about Romans basically um, <laughs> so yeah I'm addicted to them now <laughs>
0: Well, you say in, in in your biography on your own website that you you love and hate them, and I think that's yeah. probably true for anyone who's who's read more than one book on ancient Rome. There's a lot to love, but there's also an enormous amount to hate, and they were very complex people, and it was quite a, a complicated civilization, probably the most complicated. In the ancient world, I mean, certainly we have more we have more uh, sources to quote on on the personalities and and the stuff you probably yeah. were more interested in the psychology of some of these people than any other civilization.
1: I think that's probably what gets me into the Romans more than the Greeks, is that the Romans, when they're writing about themselves, are very interested in the psychology of each other. So you get things like Suetonius and even Tacitus. And even when you're reading Livy and things like that, they're very interested in the psychology of the people that they're writing about. So they're not just describing wars and they're not just describing politics. They are really interested in why the historical figures did the things that they did. Um, Whereas when you read Greek writers or you read other kind of historical writers, they're culturally less interested in like Thucydides is not very interested in the psychology of Alcibiades for example like why did he switch backwards and forwards in the um, Peloponnesian War he's not very interested in that he just did Um, whereas if it was that was happening in a Roman thing you'd have entire biographies (laughs) um, about trying to work out what it is and his relationship with his mother (laughs) that made it so that that was Mm. like that um, and I think that's probably why I ended up stuck to the Romans um because they're so interested in each other um and in exemplar as well, because so much of their their thinking is organized around setting up examples, so they set up um individual examples of good and bad behavior which is the whole purpose of suetonius's um biographies really like you have examples of good things and bad things which are just consistently fascinating like why is this good behavior to you <laughs> Um nice. and why is this bad behavior Um and what makes it you know so much of what they consider to be good behavior is not necessarily what we would consider to be good Um and is so culturally constructed and culturally specific just how I got to the murder book to be honest.
0: So, so, when you talk about good and bad, I mean, we we can be very facile about this and look at it as a as a binary. But the Romans had a questionable idea of morality themselves. I mean, certainly, you know, their their behaviour at home and their behaviour as as uh, statesmen and their behaviour as warriors was was very different. Um, all of those categories seem to have carried with them some sort of exceptions for really tremendously awful behaviour, on all yeah. counts. Um, What is your overall perception about the way that Romans, because it's hard for us to imagine 2,000 years later, how they (laughs) might have approached a subject like morality? Did they have some theoretical idea of what it was and they just never practically lived up to it? Or did they think they were doing a pretty good job?
1: They pretty much thought they were doing quite a good job. <laughs> For the most part. They're, I mean, it is something that they think about a lot. Um, like stoic philosophy is like the core of Roman, that's the most popular philosophical world view. And if you think of big Romans who write about good and bad, then you'll probably think um Cicero and you'll think Seneca and and you'll think Marcus Aurelia. So they're three big Stoic yes. philosophers. They do have a very clear worldview of what they think morality is um and how they think that they should be relating to the world. But at the very core of all of it is that it's... I mean, it would be quite facile, but it's quite a selfish worldview. Like, the main thing is you put Rome above everything. If you're doing something that's good for Rome, then you are doing good, essentially. And it doesn't matter how many people you who are not Roman you have genocided to do it or how many Romans you have had to kill to do it if you can make a good enough argument that you have um, done it for the good of Rome then it is inherently good like they kill each other constantly. Um, and whether it is good or bad generally comes down to whether they can make a good enough argument that it was for the good of Rome. So, um, when Cicero kills Catiline, he makes a good argument. Like he does this extrajudicially in the middle of the night when mm. no one's looking with no trial, mm. but he makes a good enough argument that he had to do it in order to protect Rome. So everybody's fine with it. And everyone's like, yes, that was a very good murder. Um, well done. <laughs> but when, um, Brutus and Cassius and other Brutus killed Julius Caesar, they do not make a good enough argument that it is for the good of Rome.
0: Or in turn, when Antony eventually kills Cicero.
1: Yeah, exactly. He can't argue that it's for the good of Rome. It seems like a personal, hmm. I mean, it is a personal <laughs> murder. But if he could have kind of done it slightly differently and argued that it was for the good of Rome and he was killing a tyrant or whatever, then um, he would have got away with it. But that is like the very core of it. And then when you go down, if you can then argue that it's for the good of your family, then you can do whatever you want, essentially, Um, which is why you see so much nepotism, because nepotism mm. is, and I'm kind of fascinated with this at the moment, in our world, nepotism is very much a bad thing. Like if you are employing someone just because they're your son or your daughter or your cousin, you're like, well everyone should be there on merit, not because they were related to you. Whereas in Rome, um, there are examples of people suing other people because they were not advancing their children enough. Um, And they are keeping their sons at home instead of trying to introduce them to society or giving them proper political jobs or paying for them to run for office. So... If you are not being nepotistic, then that is um, considered to be a flaw against you because you are not prioritizing your family in the way that you should be prioritizing your family. So
0: so we've inherited in in Western civilization, one of those things in terms of the whole glory of Rome thing, because you can still see it happening. (laughs) You know, there are nations, um, I, I won't pick on the United States just because they're the empire of our day, but there are many wars (laughs) that they've gone to for the glory of or to protect or to serve, you know, there's always some political answer for it, uh, the the interests of, of the United States. But we seem to have turned a complete corner on on nepotism. Now that's interesting. The other thing that I think is interesting <laughs> is that when we look at Rome, there tends to be a focus, and this is largely the fault of history. And uh, you know, it's not my place to say that the the feminists are right, but they may have a very valid point here when it comes to the fact that the women of Rome <laughs> are given a cursory glance. They're occasionally brought in as as support characters, but really, in history, and I mean, you're you've you told me you gave away that you're writing a book about these incredible stories of these unbelievable, powerful, detestable, lovable ordinary <laughs> women throughout. And and the influence of those women on Roman society was profound, was it not?
1: It is. It is. They make up 50% of it. So they're always there. The reason for it is, is that most of what has survived um, in terms of writing is, um, writing about spheres which are exclusively seen as male so politics and war which are areas where women are not allowed to be so you only see usually when women are being badly behaved and um, doing either war things or politics things that they shouldn't be doing and at no point in roman history like the thousand one thousand five hundred years of the roman empire does it really change that women are allowed to enter those spheres so they are blocked off in that way, but every so often you see um how important women were because they are in every facet of how Romans um define themselves, largely because the family is so important. Um one thing that I was writing this week actually is i'm writing about tanaquil who is a woman that no one has ever heard of (laughs) in fact i had barely heard of her because i don't really do republican history that much but she is the first queen of rome so um a hundred years into the foundation of rome they have these seven kings um and she is the wife of the fifth king who encourages him to move to rome so that he can be um a man, basically, instead of just being an average Joe in the city that they come from. Oh. She kind of manipulates everything so that he becomes the king. She's then disappears kind of while he's king, but she's involved in all of these slightly hilarious portents which occur, which show who's going to be the next king. So there's one where um the next king is Servius Tullius, um, and he is allegedly conceived because a penis appears in the ashes of the hearth of the house um and she encourages one of her enslaved women to sit on the penis <laughs> um in order to be <laughs> impregnated by the god of the hearth.
0: uh-huh
1: um and then she takes the baby and raises it basically um and then when her husband dies, she takes complete control of the city. So she shuts down uh, the palace. She sends away everybody who can know whether he is dead or not. She tells everybody that he's still alive. And then she appears um, in front of the public and says, "Look, he's definitely still alive. Tarquinius is—he's all right. But just for the time being, you're going to pretend that Servius Tullius is the king." And everybody listens. And then she—so she kind of manipulates and is the kingmaker for the next next king which then leads to a kind of minor civil war where Tarquinius Serperbus who is the king mm-hmm. who gets overthrown becomes king and he becomes the tyrant um who then uh, his son rapes Lucretia and da, 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 da. so she is completely key to basically the fall of the of the monarchy and to its um how it becomes corrupted And you can see there like all of the obvious beats whereby she appears in public. She's got obviously too much power. She's a bit magical. Um, all bad things for women. But she is completely not included in any histories of Rome that are written in the modern world. Like all of the ones that I have looked at, um, just kind of skip straight over her. They go Romulus and Remus, mention the kings, and then go straight to Lucretia and And there are easy ways that people just write women out of history, basically. They just skip over them. And they might mention her husband or they might mention Servius Tilius, but... um... They will just skip to the next bit a, that includes a man, basically.
0: I mean, it's such a great story,
1: right? Unless you go and sit down and read Livy or read Dionysus of Halconassus. Um, Dionysus of Halconassus is really good fun because he's really bitchy about other historians. Um, <laughs> but yeah, unless you sit down and read it, which most people don't because you go to a historian to tell you the good stories, but so many just skip over the women basically because there is a basic narrative of Roman history and it is the one that they think Raymond's told about themselves, which is war politics, war politics, okay. but actually women and women's issues and the family and um how women relate to men and what a marriage is supposed to be is very much a fundamental part of the story that Raymond's told about themselves. Sure. It's just surprisingly easy for um people to not see it for some reason. Yeah.
0: Well this brings me to to something which I think is is uh, really boastworthy on your part you you're probably the first person <laughs> to give all the attention to one of these women who was just at this extraordinary juncture of history I mean she was mother to emperors uh she was the sister the daughter uh she was involved in this Julio-Claudian family in every which way Agrippina the younger and you know, yeah. many people. I, when I look at the family tree, I can't believe that she would have lived through the reigns of so many emperors, who were also <laughs> very different. And she would have presided over a time where, you know, so many of them were killed. There was such controversy. Some of the reigns were short. Some of the reigns were long. She watched the most unbelievable things unfold in in historical terms. What a story! That if if they're going to make a movie about Julius Caesar they'll get the story of Julius Caesar. <laughs> but if you made a movie about Agrippina, you'd get the story of ancient Rome.
1: You would. You would get all the way from Tiberius through to Nero, um, which is, you know, when people talk about the Romans, what they are mostly thinking of is that Julia-Claudian story, that um period which we know from Suetonius and Tacitus. And she's there for pretty much all of it. She is consistently fascinating because she is simultaneously very very focused on one specific thing which is getting power for her son um but also is um an example of how far you can go if a man lets you basically one of the things I find most fascinating about her story is that she is able to get genuine power like not just influence which most women are allowed where you can kind of whisper to men in the back rooms but because her husband is quite reliant on her. She marries her uncle, Claudius, in case people (laughs) um, don't know. Uh, But because she he becomes so reliant on her to hold his reign together, essentially, that she is able to genuinely have power where she can sit in front of um, audiences, she can be in the room when people are discussing politics rather than just be in the bedroom later. But as soon as Claudius dies and Nero takes over, All of that is taken away because it turns out that she can't hold any of that by herself. She has no personal ability to hold that power. And as soon as a man says no, it is completely taken away from her. And there is this moment in her story where shortly after Nero takes power, she attempts to sit in on a delegation from a, a foreign power from the Armenians. Um And she comes in and she's been doing this for years with her husband. She's been sitting in on these political conversations about what we're going to do in foreign countries. And she has been involved in who is going to be the next governor of Judea and who is going to, mm. you know, what is our foreign policy here going to be? But Nero stands up and says no and removes her from the room basically. And it's just such a... Humiliating moment because he doesn't respect her as a person and he doesn't respect her as a, as an advisor. Her gender is completely in the way of everything for her. And that's all they see when they look at her. And she is removed to a back room and pushed back into having influence. And it is such a revealing uh, example of how. One, how much she thought she could innovate and how much she thought she was there because she deserved it and that she could be an individual within this space who was really good at being a diplomat, really good at being a politician, but how very wrong she was because in the end, that gender division between what you're allowed to do because you're a woman just is a complete blockade that she can never get over. It's a wall between her ability to do it and whether she actually is allowed to do it. And it's, yeah, it's just such a a moment where you can just feel the humiliation, like you could imagine being her and feel the agony, oh. basically, of being rejected.
0: I have a bunch of questions here from Anthony, who's just devastated he couldn't join us today, with technical <laughs> issues. He, he wants to know, because he also read Agrippina, and he said, why are you not a fan of Augustus?
1: <laughs> i am a fan of augustus he just scares the life out of me because he's so ruthless he's so smart and i find so what he does is he's 19 years old he's a sickly 19 year old and his great uncle dies um and he finds out that he has been named in the will and his great uncle has been murdered by his best friend <laughs> and it, and Octavian's not even in the country. He's a child. He's way too young. Romans kind of, for men anyway, they like age. Like you're not supposed to do stuff until you're 40. They don't think that you are in a proper adult until you're in your thirties. They think that 19 year olds are still children. So he could have just gone, Oh, well, that's, that sucks for me and kind of gone off and lived a happy life somewhere or uh, taken the money and run, basically. But instead, he marches straight back to Rome, raises an army, declares himself the new Julius Caesar, changes his name, and then starts threatening people with swords, saying, you murdered my father and I'm going to get revenge. Um, And just completely overturns the entire political system and then spends the next Two decades waging civil wars and destroying everybody, um, ruthlessly, like just with a, a vision that he is going to take everything over. And then as soon as he's killed everybody, like just completely wiped out every potential challenger to his sole power, he flips and is like, I'm a nice guy now (laughs) and gets himself renamed Augustus, which is like this peaceful, religious, like kind of Dalai Lama-esque vision Mm. and then completely presents himself and then starts a complete cultural renaissance where he rewrites the entire story of Rome in his own image. And I just think the single-minded, ruthless, like guts of it basically is terrifying. And I kind of love him because he is so good at what he does. Like he understands how to delegate what he's not good at. He understands that in order to get people to accept single person rule, he's going to have to completely change how people see themselves and see Rome. And so he's going to pay people to retell the story of Rome from the beginning. He's going to get Virgil involved. He's going to get poets involved. He's going to get historians involved. He's going to make buildings which retell the story so that he's the pinnacle of it. And all of it is so impressive, but also utterly, utterly terrifying. Like, if you came up against him, I would would run away (laughs) because he just scares the life out of me, basically. I think he was like a little... I can't imagine having that vision and then pursuing it through for the rest of your life um, and being so wildly successful at it. But, um, yeah, it's just very scary.
0: So one of the other things that, that Anthony wanted me to ask you um, is, he said, considering how much was actually documented by the Romans themselves and how much of it was propaganda, as you've hinted at with, with Augustus, how much of it can yeah. we actually trust? I mean, even Julius Caesar's death wasn't documented <laughs> until years after the fact. And, and how do we know any of it's true?
1: Oh, well, that's a good question. Um, I always think that as you can trust it as far as you are aware that it has a purpose, basically. So all of the sources that we have have a purpose. They're writing to an end. So when you're reading history, Roman history is pretty explicit, like Tacitus is very explicit, and so is Livy, that they're writing moral history, that you are to learn moral lessons from their stories that they're going to tell you, Um, which is means that what you can learn is that they are going to manipulate the events that occurred that they're telling you about in order to fit the morals that you want them to learn. So you might not learn precisely what happened um, but you're going to learn what at least a subset of the Romans wanted to tell you what happened or wanted you to learn from mm. it, and from that, you can learn you know what do they think is a good behavior for a leader, what do they think is bad behavior from a leader, what do they think the correct position of the Senate is, what do they think the correct position for a a general is you know, and you can you might not learn precisely x did y but you can learn that it's useful for roman to say that x did y because it leads into this moral lesson so we know that this moral lesson is something that they thought was good behavior so it's levels of analysis basically um and you can't trust that they are going to tell you the truth about what happened but they're going to tell you a truth and that truth is as useful as the truth (laughs) sometimes you're really lucky like with Julius Caesar's murder for example we have five tellings of Julius Caesar's murder the first one is from during Augustus's reign so it has a very specific goal which is to talk about how Julius Caesar was the greatest man who ever lived because he is Augustus's father um and therefore it was all very bad and then they kind of spread out through history but um the interesting thing about them is that they diverge in some details, um, and they diverge in how they tell it as to whether the assassins are assassins who are working for the good of the state or whether they are, um, bad murderers who are selfishly working for their own purposes. But the details of what they tell are basically the same every time. Um, and they work to the same beats of the story of what happened that day. So, You get from each different telling a different interpretation, but quite often when you get various tellings of the same event, the details are broadly the same. So Romans didn't like Roman historians and biographers didn't like to make up stuff from whole cloth. They would hit certain beats. It's like they're telling historical fiction. Like if you were to tell the story of Henry VIII, you would hit specific beats of like his youth, and then he was going to be the emperor of, um, you know, the Holy Roman Emperor. And then he, then he has one marriage, two marriage, three marriage, da, da, da. And, but the way that you tell it might be slightly different depending on whether you think Henry is great or how you feel about Anne Boleyn. But the story that you told would basically be the same as anybody else telling that story. Just your interpretation would be different. So that's what we get from the Romans. And you just have to be very aware that they are interpreting.
0: Yeah, it, it almost feels like, um, what we do with children in, in nursery school. We teach them a fairy tale, but the moral of the story is more important than the, the name of the princess or the yeah. dragon or anything else.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And while I'm writing, you know, I'm writing about the mythical beginnings of Rome at the moment. And I do compare it to fairy tales because they will tell the story of, you know, Tanaquil or Lucretia or whatever, but they interpret it for their own. Time. So if you're re- if they're writing it in the time of Augustus, then it has a specific perspective. But then it, when it's retold 200 years later, um, it has a slightly different perspective because they're writing it for a time when emperors. Are, everybody knows the emperors are the norm, and yeah. we have different problems now. <laughs> and it's much the same way that if you took a a telling of Cinderella, like the original telling, and then you've got like a telling from the 1950s or a telling from today, the story. Broadly the same, but it's completely different perspective.
0: Yeah. We can even see that now with Snow White and the seven dwarves. And, you know, there's all sorts of controversy around, can we still refer to the dwarves, even though they're mythical creatures in the book as being dwarves? Because, you know, know, there's an, there's an actor who's upset about it because he's a dwarf or whatever it might be. But as times change, so the story adapts to that time for the telling. You know what's interesting to me, and and you're the best person to ask this, if you could, I mean, to me, heaven would be a time machine, but if you could go back in time, (laughs) what would be the best thing for you to see in ancient Rome? I mean, there's so many great events that have formed what we know about Uh, the modern world. I
1: mean, this is very selfish, but I would actually really love to see one of the... Uh, Great triumphs of either Pompey or Julius Caesar. You know, Pompey has like four and Julius Caesar at one point has three triumphs in one week. Um, and each one is uh, to celebrate another great victory in Europe. And I would just love to see what a great triumph looks like when you have thousands of soldiers and all of the booty that they've got and they talk about you know making basically like papier mache mountains and carrying them through the streets and i would just i would love to see what a proper triumph looks like like the like that is when you think about the glory of rome what i think about is a triumph basically like when they're celebrating their own glory as conquerors and dragging enslaved people behind them (laughs) um but i would just love to see how they how they present a triumph. it sounds brilliant um, in a terrifying kind of way, but yeah, I would love to go and see that if I could go back to like one moment, it would be Mm. a a day of one of Julius Caesar's triumphs.
0: Wow. Absolutely. I mean, so I went to Rome for the first time, I'm embarrassed to say in in 2019. And I decided as soon as I'd arrived that I had to do a little pilgrimage up to the, 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 the the Capitoline Hill and, uh, you know, do what the Roman emperors would have done and, and go straight to the, 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 temple of Jupiter, Optimus, Maximus, and kind of pay my respects. And then I could go and have a look at the forum and everything else. (laughs) And it felt sort of, it felt very spooky to me because that place has, it's so evocative for so many of us who read, uh, you know, ancient history, who study this kind of thing and who have an interest in it. And there are many, many people who are just for some or other reason attracted to it and you've unpacked some of those reasons already you know the society the the power the glory the military expeditions the 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 the, the brash vulgar kind of confidence of ancient <laughs> i think we we've we've we look back on now and it's almost it's like when you when you read stuff that was written by sort of kipling at the height of the british empire it's so
1: <laughs> yeah and it is
0: so arrogant. And, and at the same time, it's, it's, <laughs> we, don't, we don't do that anymore. If anyone spoke like that now, they'd be chased out of town. But it, to me, it. the interesting thing about that whole Julia-Claudian period and, and Agrippina, as as you mentioned earlier, lived at such an interesting crossroads of history. That whole line was wiped out. There, was, there wasn't a single descendant left after Nero had finished yeah. his business. There was something else that I picked up, in your book that I wanted you to comment on, murder being a big part of this. In the book that I'm reading at the moment, there are something like 26 emperors who were <laughs> murdered in 50 years that you, you picked up on. I mean, this is just extraordinary.
1: Yeah. Uh, it was a third century crisis, which is a particular time um where they basically allowed the imperial position to become a military dictatorship, essentially, whereby um any old general could become Emperor as long as enough soldiers supported him and the Senate became sort of very, very weak and was completely unable to stop any old legion from declaring their own. A guy as emperor so you have these just constant wars where one guy's coming forward saying that he's the emperor and he'll turn up in Rome or sometimes they don't even bother to turn up in Rome and the senate will go okay yes he's the emperor and then six months later some other guy says oh no wait I'm the emperor Um and then he goes to war with the previous emperor and they fight and one of them wins and then the senate goes okay yeah sure you're the emperor now please don't hurt us and that cycle just repeats over and over again and sometimes they last for three or four years um sometimes you get like a tiny dynasty of like one guy who lasts for um so within that I think there's the Gordian Gordian 1 and Gordian 2 who manage to Last for like 15 years in there, and they do okay and manage to pass it on to his son, and then his son is immediately killed. But for the most part, they allow the position to be almost meritocratic, which is that anybody can do it. Because at almost no point does anything get successfully passed down for three generations. It never manages to go from father to son to son. (laughs) Sometimes it manages to go from father to son. But that son is almost always executed. <laughs> um In fact, if you want to list bad emperors, almost all of them are um ones who inherit the throne because there is also something deep in the way that Romans bring up their sons within the imperial court. That means that they almost cannot be good emperors. Like as soon as you get... A Caligula, for example, raised to be an emperor, um, terrible. Nero raised to be an emperor, awful. Caracalla, rubbish. Domitian, all of them are raised within the court, inherit the throne, are rubbish. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Emma, thank you so much for, for talking to us today. It's such a great pleasure to have you on and uh, all the best with the rest of your projects. I'm absolutely convinced that they will continue to enthrall us. You tell the stories of history with such an excitement and a, and, a, and a passion. It just makes it an absolute pleasure to hear you. And I hope we'll hear from you again soon and we can talk to you about your next book.
1: I hope so. Hopefully um, we'll be able to be there as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll make up for it, I promise. Thank you so much. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's your biggest Roman history bugbear? What is the myth that you wish you could bust, (laughs) that you could go back and and see for yourself and figure out what happened? Because there are so many mysteries and unresolved questions. Where do you start?
1: Oh my God. Okay, the the one that I would like to bust... The one that um always just makes my eye twitch when I see it is that Caligula made his horse a console. Drives me m- mental. <laughs> Whenever I see it, I get just furious about it. Um And no matter how hard I tell people that he definitely didn't, it doesn't matter. It's too late now. That's just in the ether. But that would be like the one myth that I would bust.